Are you ready? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Ready? He is risen. Amen. A lot of believers around the world say it that way on Resurrection Sunday. God bless you guys. All right. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And before we actually look at those verses in Luke 24, I wanted to uh, set this study up by telling you, now I have in my notes originally a few years ago, I was thinking about it, actually it's 25 years ago, so time flies, but I'll still say it this way, a few years ago, because I'm still 50, um, a few years ago our family vacationed in West Virginia at Historic Williamsburg, some of you have been there. And while we were there, we got to look around at a lot of things, but at one point we got a chance to take a tour through an old colonial church, actual real church, uh, active in the 1600s. And um, as we entered this church, um, the uh, tour guide had us sit in the pews because she was going to give us the history and background of, uh, of the church and Christianity and uh, in... Um, uh, in that period of time, but I noticed that the pews were kind of um, unusual in the sense that uh, you first of all had to open a little door and walk into them and close the door behind you. Now, when I sit on, in a pew, I like to put on the end, I like to put my arm on the uh, armrest, right? But these pews, the uh, you couldn't do that because they came up very high in the sides. Uh, about the top of your head, actually, which struck me as a little odd. So when she opened it up for questions, I said to her, I said, uh, why are these pews designed like this with the um, sides so high and a door you have to actually open to get into? Here's what she said. In those days, there was no heat source for the church. There was no heaters, no furnaces, right? So to keep warm, what families did was they took little iron pots, kettles, and they would take from the hearth of their fireplace at home, fill it with hot embers, hot coals, put a lid on it, bring it to church, open the door to the pew, get inside, close the door, and put the pot on the ground, and it would give heat. If every family did that, it kind of heated the church, but the pews kept the heat in because that's how they were built. Well, you know, as a pastor, I'm always thinking about how things relate to the spiritual life. And um, I thought to myself, you know, that's interesting because the only fire that we bring into this place is the fire that we bring from the hearths of our own house, hearts from our own homes. Guys, the only fire that's going to be here is the fire that we bring from home and a fire that will only be kindled through our daily communion with the Lord. Look, God wants us to have burning hearts for Him. Too often, our hearts are lukewarm or even cold. You know, Paul the Apostle, uh, Apostle admonished Timothy, a young pastor, in 2 Timothy 1 verse 6, to stir up the gift of God. To stir up the gift of God. The uh, Amplified translates that this way. Let me read it to you. That is why I would remind you to stir up 
to rekindle the embers of, fan the flame of, to keep burning the gracious gift of God, the inner fire that is in you. Guys, the greatest need of the church today, I'm convinced, is that men and women have burning hearts. Burning hearts. I mean, we have a lot of good programs in the church. I mean, uh, a lot of churches have put into practice some good sound programs that incorporate biblical principles. But often what a church lacks is spiritual passion. I mean, for many Christians today, their enthusiasm for the things of God has waned. And I realize that we're living in difficult times, and they might get more difficult. But I think all of that is contributing to this. I mean, not every Christian, but many Christians today seem to be um, running on empty in many ways, spiritually speaking. Um, they lack spiritual passion. They lack an enthusiasm for the things of God. Their fire has not gone out completely, but it's on its way. This brings us to our text this morning. And I really want to focus on verse 13 on, but I want to set it up by reading the first six verses of Luke 24. And so, of course, this is Resurrection Sunday morning. Verse 1, now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men, two angels, stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their heads, faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Now, verse 13, which took place that afternoon. Now behold, two of them, two of Jesus' disciples, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened there in these days, in these past few days, is the idea. We stop there. So here you have two disciples of Jesus that found themselves in a similar place that we just talked about. Their hearts were sad, and their passion had cooled. It was all but gone, really. First of all, before we try to determine, and I want to go through this because so many Christians find themselves in a similar place. And we're going to talk about it. What did Jesus do to kind of revive these two disciples? Because he's going to do that same thing with all of us, so we should pay attention. Everything in God's Word is written for our learning. And this is no different. But first of all, before we try to determine what the problem was that was causing, causing them to lose their spiritual passion, 
let's look let's first of all look at what they hadn't lost or in other words <clears throat> what they still had in their relationship with Jesus so again verse 18 then one of the, uh, uh, one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things which happened there in these last days and he said to them what things as if Jesus didn't know of course so they said to him the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. Let me stop there. So what hadn't they lost? What did they still possess? Well, they still had a love for Jesus in verse 19. Even though their hearts were broken and their dreams were shattered, we'll talk about that more in a second, they um, still spoke of Jesus with fondness. Fondness. There really wasn't any animosity or bitterness in their hearts when they spoke of him. Now, there are a lot of Christians I have met over the years when things don't go their way and their dreams are shattered in some way. They become bitter against God, even angry. I've seen it. But to their credit, not these two disciples. They still have, had a love in their hearts for Jesus. What else did they have? Well, they still believed in him. Verse 19 tells us, maybe not to the degree that they had a few days earlier. I mean, they no, no longer believed he was the Messiah of Israel, that's true. But they still referred to him as a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. So their faith, although damaged, was not completely destroyed. Like a lot of Christians who find themselves in a situation like this, where they're just beaten down by their circumstances and uh, just broken hearted over something, right? All right, so that's what they had. What did they, what had they lost? What, what had they lost at this point? Because this is what Jesus wants to restore. Well, first of all, they lost hold of the promises that Jesus had given to them. See, Jesus had spoken to his disciples on many occasions and had given to them many promises. And here, these two disciples were no different, but they had forgotten what Jesus had told them and the promises he had given to them. Now, he had given to his disciples many promises, but I want to focus on three. Uh, one promise he said in three different ways, because it's critical to what we're talking about. So, first of all, three times the Lord had told his disciples that he was going to be crucified. But on the third day, he would rise again. Also, he likened himself to Jonah in Matthew 12, verse 40. As Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, Jesus had said, even so the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, implying after three days he was going to be resurrected. And then finally, he had said to them, if the temple of his body would be destroyed in three days, he would raise it up. Now, he had given his disciples these promises. But you know how it is. When somebody says to you something that is very important, and then they do a quick detour and add something bad to it, something you were hoping for, but now, you know how your brain tends to click off? As I said, on three or four different occasions, Jesus told his main disciples, the 12th, that he was going to be going to Jerusalem, 
where he would be handed over into the hands of sinful men and crucified. But the third day would rise again. But they didn't hear that last part. Because resurrection Sunday morning, when the women came to the guys, Peter and John and the others, and said, we were at the tomb, it's empty, the body of Jesus is gone. They said, yeah, get out of here. They thought the girls were, they had lost their minds. The resurrection took them by surprise. Why? He had told them three or four times he was going to rise from the dead after being crucified. But you see, they had invested all their hope in him to come and establish the kingdom where they're going to be prime ministers and rule over the whole earth. You can't die. So as soon as they heard, I'm going to be going to Jerusalem and be crucified, click. Their brains shut off. If you've ever taken a very important test, that a doctor has now to give you the results. And if you think it's possibly cancer, you better bring somebody with you because when the doctor sits you down and says, well, we have found that you have cancer, click. You're so worried about it, you're not hearing them say about, we think we can treat it and cure you. We have to be careful because these, like these men we tend to hear what we want to hear. And often when we don't hear what we want to hear, we just, our minds, our brains shut off. This is what I see with these guys. It seemed that they hadn't taken to heart the promises that Jesus gave them of his resurrection. Maybe they didn't really hear it, like I said. Maybe they ignored it because it didn't fit into their theology of Messiah. I don't know. But... I know one thing, they had all come to believe that Messiah, when he came, was going to lead them in a revolt against Rome, overthrow the yoke of Roman oppression, establish a kingdom where he and the Jewish people would reign from Jerusalem over the whole earth. I mean, he didn't come to die, he came to establish the kingdom. That was in their minds. Keep that in mind, we'll get back to it. But I see this, guys, as a classic case of picking and choosing what we want to hear from God's word while rejecting the rest of it. You know, even, as, even when Christians do believe in the promises of God, they often lose heart when God doesn't come through with those promises as fast as they would like. It's a big one. We all tend to put God on our timetable. Now, God's promised to do certain things. I've Over the years, I've, I've had several people that um, were in danger of losing their jobs. And we were praying for them and praying for them, right? And they lost their job anyways. And sometimes those people get angry at God. Well, he let me down. He didn't come through for me. He didn't keep his promise. What promise are you talking about? That you keep this job for the rest of your life? I don't remember seeing that in my Bible. I do remember a promise where he said, I'll take care of you. I'll make sure you always have something to eat and a place to live. I remember, I remember those promises. But see, we not only put God in our timetable, we, in our minds, have it all figured out how he's going to do it. Answer my prayer. So that when he doesn't do it my way, I'm not looking for any other possibility. That maybe he's, he's allowed me to lose my job because he's got a better job for me. Or he's allowed me... Uh, this person that I thought was going to be my wife or my husband uh, didn't work out and we broke up and I'm heartbroken and how could you do this, God? You know I wanted a spouse. 
God is saying, but that wasn't the right one. I've got a person for you that's perfect, one that I have handpicked. In fact, when I created you, I created them that you fit together perfectly. But again, we're human beings. And often when things don't work out our, the way we want or expect, uh, we get very um, disillusioned, sometimes very depressed, discouraged, defeated. Um, forgetting that God has got in his word many promises, and he's going to fulfill them. But in his time, remember what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1, for everything there is a season a time for every purpose. Can I include promise? A time for every purpose, every promise under heaven. Remember what Paul reminded us of in Galatians 4, verse 4? He said, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. That promise of a Messiah was made in the Garden of Eden. It was like 4,000 years before Jesus actually was born. Sometimes we think that the window of opportunity has ended. God, you had your chance. I've been praying for this for a long time. Lord, you had your chance. Did Elizabeth and um, Zechariah say that to God when they had prayed for a son for many years? And now they were elderly? They stopped praying, no doubt, many years earlier for a son. Probably thinking maybe on a bad day you had your chance, God. We're too old to have a kid now. Thanks a lot. All of a sudden, Gabriel appears at Zechariah one day while he's ministering in the temple. Hey, the time has come. What are you talking about? By this time next year, your wife's going to have a son. Gonna name, his, name him John. He's going to be pretty important in the whole plan of God. Remember, God's timing is not always our timing. His ways are not our ways. Let's just cling to the promise and stop trying to figure out how he's going to fulfill it. He knows what he's doing, right? And in the meantime, Galatians 6, 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season, at the right time we will reap if we don't lose heart. So hang in there. So they first of all had lost hold of the promises that Jesus had given to them. Secondly, they had lost their hope. This is a big one. Verse 20. So, uh, you know, stranger, don't you know what's happened the last few days? You know, um, what things? Well, how we had hoped Jesus of Nazareth would, was the Messiah who would establish the kingdom, basically. Verse 20. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we were hoping, past tense, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. How black, thing, black things can look when we lose hope that God is going to come through. Again, he had his chance. I've been praying for this for years. I've given up. Well, Jesus in Luke 18, 1, men, women ought always to pray and not lose heart because we don't know God's timing, right? But I like Proverbs 13, verse 12. You don't have to turn to it. Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, when a hope is realized, in other words, it is a tree of life. 
Or in other words, when we're deprived of hope, we become emotionally sick, emotionally sick. And that can lead to depression and in some extreme cases even to suicide. We have to have hope to live. Nobody can live without hope. Webster's Dictionary defines hope this way, and I'm quoting, to desire with expectation of obtainment. Now look, humanly speaking, just because we hope for something with all our hearts doesn't mean it's going to be, it's not guaranteed, right? Unless there's only one hope that is always guaranteed, and that is hope in something God has promised. God will always fulfill his promises. Wishful thinking, you're on your own, okay? I mean, I have hope for a lot of stuff over the course of my life. Uh, a lot of it never came true. Some of it I'm very happy it never came true. You know, I'm not going to get into it. But, you know, when you just hope for something on your own, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. But if God promises you something, that's a hope you can take to the bank. It's going to happen, right? Now, the Bible says that God has given to his children many promises, all of which are designed to give us hope. Peter called these promises in 2 Peter 1, 4, exceedingly great and precious promises. Many of these deal with everyday life, promises that God has given to us to provide every need we have in the physical, because he knows we, we have certain needs, right? Uh, you all know Matthew 6, verses 31 to 33 where Jesus admonished his disciples, including all of us. So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God. Put him first. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need in the physical. That's a promise. Philippians 4.19 says, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Guys, listen. The God who created us knows how important hope is. He knows how important hope is for living our lives here on the earth and how prone we are to lose our hope when things get tough. That's why all throughout his word he admonishes us. He encourages us. By, by reaffirming his promises, he's telling us don't give up. Don't lose hope. The devil is a hope killer. The devil wants to condemn us. The devil wants to say, we have no hope going forward. All is lost kind of a thing. Because the devil knows if he can get you to lose hope, he can get you to lose your faith. If he gets you to lose your faith, he can break your relationship with God. You're never a threat then to his kingdom, the devil's kingdom. So God is all the way through his word encouraging us with words that reaffirm his promises, that he's faithful that he can be trusted, right? One of my favorites is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have toward you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. I know it looks bad right now, God is saying. I know it looks black. But don't give up hope. I'm working. I haven't gone anywhere. In fact, I'm bringing you through a dark valley right now. That's true. But as the psalmist said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for what? You are with me. He's with us in these difficult times. And in fact, these 
trials and tribulations and adversities and heartaches are really invitations for the Lord Jesus to meet us, to meet us in the circumstance, which is why he allows us to go through these things in the first place. He's wanting us to draw close to him. John the Apostle. Tradition says that they wanted to kill him, the Roman government. So they threw him in a pot of boiling oil. It had no effect on John. Why? His time was not done. God still had plans for John. So they took him out of this boiling oil and banished him to the Isle of Patmos, a rock that juts up in the, from the Aegean Sea, a penal colony, basically where prisoners were sent to work and die. But there Jesus met John on the Isle of Patmos and gave to him the greatest revelation in all the Bible. We call it the Book of Revelation. And after that he was released and he went around the churches ministering until his death. Look, until God's finished with you, you're indestructible. And when you go through adversity, hang in there. And, 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 and seek Jesus. Ask him to meet you in the adversity. He will. And he will strengthen you. I like Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, got to have faith, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all about God's strength. It's all about clinging to his promises, trusting in his character. Has he made you a promise? Yes, he has. Then he's going to take care of it. I don't, I, but I can't see how. You don't have to see how. It's not up to you to figure out how God's going to fulfill his promises. Just take it to the bank, cling to it, that's where your hope's going to come from. So they had lost hold of the promises that Jesus had given to them. They had lost their hope. Number three, they lost sight of Jesus because of their circumstances. Verse 15, So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, verse 16, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Once we begin to lose our faith, our spiritual vision grows dim. And we get very nearsighted. In other words, we only tend to see the size of the problem before us. We don't see the size of our God over, over everything. Years ago, my pastor used an illustration that I've always remembered. He said, if you take your hand, something as small as your hand, and you bring it up close enough to your face... It'll block out something as big as the sun. We often do that. We let our trials, adversities get so, it's all we see. We get so close to them, it completely blocks our sight out of the sun, but this time spelled S-O-N. I mean, we can get so focused on the circumstances that we no longer see things through the eyes of faith, but only through the eyes of flesh. Peter is the classic example of this. Walking on the Sea of Galilee to Jesus, Jesus, come to me. Can I walk on the water to you, Lord? Come to me. Jesus, uh, Peter stepped out of the boat, began to walk on water, but there was a storm that was raging. And you know what? After a few steps on the water, I think it, reality must have dawned on him. What am I doing? I'm, I'm, I'm walking on water. I can't do this. No, it was impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That was the whole point of the story. That if we want to do the impossible, and sometimes life is full of impossible circumstances. If we want to 
walk above them and not be brought under to sink because of them. We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. That's what happened with Peter. He got his eyes off the Lord, and uh, he began to sink even as we do when we get our eyes off of the Lord in whatever storm of life we're going through. Now, when that happens, something else we lose right away. They lost their joy, and so do we. Verse 17, And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And even though the Lord was standing right next to these two disciples, as he is with us, really, actually he's in us, inside of us, well, we'll, you know, He's definitely with us, right? Even though the Lord Jesus was with these two disciples, he had come alongside of them. They couldn't see him. Why? Because their eyes were blinded by sorrow and loss and shattered dreams. Reminds me of Mary Magdalene. The morning of the resurrection, after the guys had all come and saw the tomb was empty and they left, Mary stood outside the tomb and was weeping. And suddenly Jesus is standing right next to her. And she didn't know who he was. She thought he was the gardener and said, Sir, if you've taken his body some more, let me know where you've put it. I'll come and take it away. I think she could have done that. She had a lot of love. Mary had a lot of love for Jesus. And Jesus said one word to her. Mary. Now, I wasn't there to hear how he said that word. Sometimes I think I was. It's getting older and what, is, what did Paul say? The uh, flesh is getting weaker and weaker. It's wearing out, right? But no, no. We weren't there to hear how he said her name. But he had a way of saying her name that all he had to do was say it. She knew immediately who it was and she cried, Rabboni, Rabbi, teacher, fell at his feet, grabbed his ankles. Remember what he said there? Uh, some of the Bibles don't know what to do with this. It's kind of a, a cloudy thing to translate. Um, and, and so they translated. Some of it says, you know, he, he said to her, Mary, don't cling to me. Or don't touch me, I should say. Don't touch me. <gasps> Why? Is there something special about the, the re resurrected, glorified body? Would she mess it up by touching him? No. What he said was, don't cling to me. She was hanging on. She was not going to let him go. I lost you once, Lord. I'm never going to let you go. Mary, you have to let go of me. You've got to share me. With, you just keep me for yourself. Nobody else benefits from me. we got to let Jesus go. You know, some, some of us are holding on too tight. What does that mean? I don't know. You figure it out. But sometimes we're just holding on too tight. And we have to share Jesus with others. You know? And, and, and so on. But um, here Jesus was standing right next to Mary. But her eyes were so swollen from crying. Uh, her heart was broken. Her future seemed shattered. She didn't even recognize Jesus when he was standing right there. I'm convinced that happens with so many of us. So here, what had these two disciples lost that often corresponds to what we lose in our circumstances? First of all, they lost hold of the promises that Jesus had given to them. Secondly, they lost hope. Thirdly, they lost sight of Jesus because of the circumstances. Number four, they lost their joy. And finally, number five, they lost their fire. As you can imagine, they lost their fire. 
Their spiritual passion was gone. And all of this, guys, is a picture of many in the church today. Many people have suffered bitter losses, disappointments. I know that many have lost people to COVID. Many are still suffering the after effects of COVID, called long COVID. And there's just a lot going on. People have lost jobs because of the economy. Inflation is terrible. There's a lot going on that has caused many people, and I'm talking about people of God, to get their eyes off of Jesus and under their circumstances. They're suffering bitter disappointments. And so like the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus, let me read quickly. These folks, they relate to these two disciples, many in the church. They still have a love for Jesus, although they speak of their relationship with him often in the past tense. Nothing really going on right now too much. It's everything about Jesus that I used to enjoy when I first got saved. All right? They still believe in him somewhat. Their faith is severely damaged, but not totally destroyed. They've lost hold of the promises that God has given to them in his word. They've lost hope that God is ever going to work and that things are ever going to change, whatever the circumstance. Their spiritual vision has grown dim. They can't see the Lord is with them and is still working in their lives. They've lost their joy and they've lost their passion for God. So what did Jesus do to um, heal them, I guess, to restore them? Well, we read in our text, the first thing he did was Jesus comes to these guys. He comes to them. Verse 15. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. He was walking alongside them. It seems that Jesus spent most of the afternoon talking to these guys. Most of the afternoon. Talking to them, teaching them. Even though neither of these two disciples was, listen now, don't get me wrong, even though neither of these two disciples was anyone important. What do I mean by that? Well, they weren't apostles. They, 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 they weren't, you know, of the 12. Two ordinary disciples, obscure disciples. But I want to bring that up because I want you to understand that there are no ordinary disciples to Jesus. There are no obscure disciples. He knows every one of us. In fact, he knows every hair on our head. He takes great interest in our lives. He is no respecter of persons, and therefore he has no ordinary disciples. He loves all of us. We are all special to him. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares upon him, for he deeply cares about you. Look, he knows this morning, if you're having a crisis of faith, and I believe he's going to come to you in some way, shape, or form to encourage you. Now, what do, what do I mean? He's going to appear to me? Yeah, but not like you think. Maybe he'll come to you through a circumstance. Again, the guys were out in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was on the mountain praying for them. A storm hit. They were tossed to and fro, and they rode feverishly for six to seven, eight hours trying to get across the Sea of Galilee as Jesus had commanded them. Get into a boat, cross to the other side, while I go up on a mountain to pray. 
They were fighting for their lives. They were exhausted. They thought the boat was going down. All hope was gone. And all of a sudden, here comes Jesus walking to them on the water, right? He came to them in the circumstance, as he always will come to us in whatever circumstance we're going through, especially if it's a difficult one, right? He comes to us. Sometimes he'll come to us through a verse or passage in the Bible we're reading in our morning devotions. How many times I've been doing my morning devotions, something heavy on my heart, I've been praying about something, as I open the word, I must have read it hundreds of times, but here it is jumping off the page at me, and the Lord is speaking to me. I know he is, I can sense it. He's speaking to me through this verse or passage. Sometimes he might come to you through somebody you know, maybe a Christian, or through somebody you have never met in prior to this. And, 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 and the Lord just allows them to say something. Maybe share a testimony, that they, their own testimony, or something else. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Make no mistake about it, Jesus Christ will come to us in a variety of ways to encourage us, but you have to be open to that possibility. Because if you're not, you might miss him when he does come. I'm convinced a lot of Christians have. If you look at, not right now, but in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, when again it talks about the storm and Jesus walking to them on the water, it says they were so preoccupied with the circumstance, so fearful of what they were going through, he almost walked right by them. They almost missed him coming to them. God help us never to miss a visit by Jesus in a trial or adversity. Let's be open to how he will come to us, speak to us, through a variety of ways, right, to encourage us. So first of all, he comes to them. That's how he restores them. He comes to them. Secondly, he reproves them. Now be careful. This is not an angry rebuke. This is a gentle, loving reproof. Verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. What was their basic problem? Jesus identifies it right here. They did not believe, listen, all that the prophets had written about the Messiah. That was the problem with most of the Jews in that day. They saw Messiah as a conquering Savior when he came. He was going to save them from Roman oppression. He was going to save them from the yoke of Rome and establish a kingdom where they would no longer be subservient to Rome. They would become uh, the, uh, the um, prime minister's of the kingdom on earth. They only saw Messiah as a conquering Savior. They did not see him as a suffering servant. That's very important you understand that. Isaiah 53 verse 3 comes to mind. As they read their scriptures, which would be our Old Testament, their scriptures, they read their scriptures back then, they had a tendency to only focus on the scriptures that dealt with Messiah's glory. And how he would establish a kingdom of glory again. And they would be his prime ministers. That's what they focused on, right? They focused on the glory passages, but not on the suffering of Messiah. In fact, now we know Jesus, Messiah, is going to come twice. 
First time he came to suffer and die. Second time he will come to reign in glory. But they didn't know that, the rabbis. The two comings of Christ were obscure to them. So what the rabbis did was they, they read the verses about a, a suffering servant Messiah and verses about a conquering hero Messiah. So what did they do? They formulated a dual Messiah theology. There was going to come a Messiah. Let's call him Messiah ben Joseph after Joseph in the book of Genesis that was persecuted and thrown into prison and so on. So there's going to come a Messiah, but not the real Messiah, and we'll call him Messiah ben Joseph. But then the true Messiah will come, the conquering Messiah who will establish the kingdom. Let's call him Messiah ben David. And so they had, you know, and so all the scriptures that dealt with Messiah ben Joseph, they just rejected because he wasn't the true Messiah. They only focused on the positive scriptures. Do we see that in the church today? Well, wait a minute. Isn't there a doctrine called positive confession? Where people only focus on the promises in the Bible that apply to their wealth and health and so on and so forth? Well, this is the problem with too many Christians today, guys. They want blessings but not adversity. They reject the cross but still want the crown, forgetting that Crucifixion Friday precedes Resurrection Sunday. You cannot reign in glory with Jesus if you don't die to this in this life, to your wants, your desires, your goals, to live for him, right? And the folks that think this way in the church, that they only want to focus on the glory verses, the good stuff, okay, they approach the scriptures, again, they only tend to read those portions of scripture that appeal to them and ignore the rest. It's kind of like, as I said before, they approach the Bible like a lot of people approach the salad bar at the local Sizzlers. Now, I don't know if there's a still a Sizzlers around here, but when I go visit my family in California, we always make it a point to go to the Sizzlers out there. And they got a killer salad bar. You ever been to Sizzlers? I mean, it's incredible, right? Now, I don't know about you. I like variety. I like to be able to pick and choose different things to eat and enjoy. That's why I like salad bars, maybe a little too much. But there's a lot of Christians who approach Scripture like that, like it's a salad bar, and they can pick and choose whatever they want to feed on, and it's always the good stuff. It's always the promises that are a blessing and so on, and they reject everything else. Paul reminded us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, for, if you, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, listen, but also to suffer for his sake. All right, so he comes to them. Secondly, he gently reproves them for not understanding all that God had said in his word. Number three, he teaches them. Can you imagine? I am so looking forward to the first Bible study in heaven where Jesus is teaching. Okay. So he can correct me on all the stuff I messed up. You're all going to turn to me and go, you didn't. That wasn't your interpretation. I did my best. Okay. This, he knows what he's talking about. Just focus on him. Okay. But he teaches them from the word of God. Verse 27. 
And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Paul the apostle, apostle admonished the Ephesian pastors in Acts 20, verse 27, to teach their people the whole counsel of God. That's why we teach verse by verse here at Calvary. Because you can't teach the whole counsel of God if you don't go verse by verse through the entire word of God. I, I talked to a pastor years ago, and he, um, he uh, challenged me on that because he liked to do topical studies. And I said, listen, there's nothing wrong with topical studies. They're awesome. But you're never going to give your people the whole counsel of God if you just give topical messages. I told them what we do is we teach verse by verse, and if we come to something that is an incredible topic, we will stop, develop it into a topical study, and then continue on verse by verse. It's topical exposition. And I think that, to me, in my mind, it's the only way to study the Word of God. Um, but look, you need all of God's Word, verse by verse, because then you get it all, right? Jesus said all of it's important. Didn't he say not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law till all is fulfilled? Jot and tittle, some of the smallest markings of the Hebrew alphabet, we would say not one dot of the I or cross of the T is going to pass away from God's Word till all is fulfilled. It's all important. I love Jeremiah 23, what God said to the prophet. In verses 28 and 9, he said, The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. Because these false prophets are running around, Oh, I had a dream. I had a dream. And I said, Well, they're not speaking on my behalf. So I can let them tell their dumb dreams. Okay? But he was my word. Let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? God's word is like a fire that can turn the whole coldest heart into a burning heart. The hardest heart, he can break it up. The word of God can break it up. Now, I know that you might be sitting there thinking, but look, I'm always studying the word of God, and my heart still feels cold. Okay, I get that. Maybe that is true, but let me ask you this. Do you study the Bible to learn about Jesus? How, how do you study the Bible? In other words, do you want to understand and draw close to Jesus as you study his word? Or are you studying simply to increase your head knowledge so you can show people how intelligent you are? I know, I've known people over the years, they study the Bible incessantly because they love to debate, to show everybody how smart they are how biblically literate they are. Look, if you're doing the right thing, studying God's word, but you're not benefiting from it as God has said, your heart's not on fire and, and things seem kind of hard and cold, now you got to check your motivation. You're doing the right things, but what's the motivation behind it? Are you doing it simply to puff yourself up? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up we need to study god's word so we can get to know jesus because the whole point is communing with him we can only really know him by communing with him verse 35 so after that jesus revealed himself they went back to jerusalem and disappeared they ran back to jerusalem and they talked to the apostles and here's what they said in part they told uh, and they told about the things that had happened on the road 
and how he was made known to them, listen, in the breaking of the bread. They sat down for him. They invited him to come to the house to have a meal with them. And as they broke the bread, Jesus did, their eyes were opened. They knew who he was, and he disappeared out from their midst. He was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's another way of saying communion. Communion. Guys, understand this. Again, verse 27. It says, He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things, listen, concerning himself. Notice something very important. The fire was not kindled. Uh, the fire was not kindled while they talked about Jesus on the road to each other. The fire was only kindled when they began spending time with Jesus and talking to him and letting him talk to them. We would say from the word. All right. What was the result in the disciples' life? Real quickly. It's obvious. What did Jesus do? What did all this have in a way of an impact on these two men? Well, first of all, their hearts were rekindled for God. Verse 32. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Their hearts were set on fire again. Number two, they had a burning passion to tell others about the risen Jesus. Verse 33, So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven apostles and those who were with them gathered together saying the lord is risen indeed you will know you're on fire for the lord in a lot of ways but one of the ways is you will have a burning desire to tell others about jesus if you have not had a desire to tell anyone about christ for a long time it really gets into the condition of your heart spiritually speaking I mean, a lot of Christians say, you know, um, I'm fine. I, I still love God. My, my heart is not cold. Well, talk is cheap. What, what is going on? I mean, what, what, what is characterizing your life right now? Is it a hunger for the word? Is it a passion to tell people about Christ? These are evidences that your heart is on fire. Um, it's not really... Reading the Bible, well, that's part of it, but you could read the Bible and have a cold heart. Going through the motions. You know, just going through the motions. Like Ephesus. Church of Ephesus, Revelation 2, Jesus said, you, you got a lot going on, a lot of good stuff. You're working yourself to the point of exhaustion for me. But this I have against you. You have left your first love. In other words, you're still going through the motions, but you've lost the emotion in your relationship with me. And I won't have that kind of service. I don't want heart service from cold hearts, from emotionless hearts. Because it's supposed to be, you know, a love relationship, right? All right. Let's just bring this to a close. I wanted to um, bring this out because I wanted to, you know, I, I just feel like so many in the church today are going through difficult times. We're not, this is not an a, 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 um, easy time to be alive. There's a lot going on in our country. There's a lot going on that is causing people to lose heart, to become worried and afraid of the future, right? 
What we need more than anything else right now is a heart on fire for God. A burning heart, right? You know, Richard Halverson was um, the United States Senate chaplain from February 2nd, 1981 until his retirement, December 31st, 1994. Before that, he pastored the 4th Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland for 23 years. I read a short condensed version of his biography in one of our books we offered uh, last year uh, for our book of the quarter. They found the secret. They found the secret. Let me read to you what the uh, writer said about Pastor Halverson. He says, during a time as a young man, when the Holy Spirit was working on him to surrender his life completely to God, one night while at a Bible conference in San Bernardino, California, he couldn't sleep and felt compelled by the Spirit of God to write out what later came to be known as the four commitments of the fellowship of the burning heart. Okay. He said, having come to a personal belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and realizing that the urgency of the hour in which we live demands the highest type of Christian discipleship, I am therefore committed to the following principles. I'll just read these to you. Number one, I'm committed to the principle that Christian discipleship is sustained solely by God alone through his spirit. That, that the abiding life of John 15 is his way of sustaining me. Therefore, I pledge myself to a disciplined devotional life in which I promise through prayer, Bible study, and devotional reading to give God not less than one hour per day. And he has scriptures after each one of these commitments. You can come up here and write them down if you want. Number two, I'm committed to the principle that Christian discipleship begins with Christian character. Therefore, I pledge myself to holy living, and that by a life of self-denial and self-discipline, I may emulate those Christ-like qualities of chastity and virtue which will magnify the Lord. Number three, I am committed to the principle that Christian discipleship exercises itself principally in the winning of the lost to Jesus Christ. Therefore, I pledge myself to seek every possible opportunity to witness in order that I may always be engaged in winning someone to Jesus Christ. And number four, I am committed to the principle that Christian discipleship demands nothing less than absolute consecration to Jesus Christ. Therefore, I present my body a living sacrifice utterly abandoned to God. By this commitment, I desire that God's perfect will shall find complete expression in my life, and I offer myself in all sobriety to be expendable for Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the burning heart. Maybe you want to sign on to that. It's a good thing to take to heart, right? So guys, look, once God sets our hearts on fire, and he'll do that if you really desire it, now we have to stoke that fire every day. We've got to stay in the Word. We've got to stay in fellowship with the Lord. We've got to be busy about His work. We've got to, to, to take holy living seriously. And every day as we continue to stoke, be in the Word, stoke that fire, God will continue to bless. That fire will be a perpetual fire that will never go out. It only will go out when we walk away from the principles we've just talked about. God wants us to have hearts on fire for Him. He wants it more than may, we may want it. We just need to be serious about it and understand 
that a burning heart is something God wants every day for us. Just like Resurrection Sunday is not one day on the calendar, it's supposed to be an everyday way of life. The resurrection life is not something we celebrate once a year. It's something we live every day. It starts when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior by faith and are born again. And after that, we must cultivate that fire every single day. Guys, we are living in very dark days. I don't know if things are going to get worse. I have a feeling they are. And now is the time to cultivate a very strong walk with God. To keep that fire burning now like never before. You're going to need it going forward. So may God give us the grace to walk in that fellowship of the burning hearts. Something we desperately need in these last days. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth. Your word, Lord, maintains us. It keeps us on fire for you. Your word is like a fire that uh, sets the coldest heart aflame. It's like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Give us grace, Lord, to feed on your word and to take it to heart and believe all the promises you've given to us in your word because you're going to fulfill those promises, even as you have said. We thank you, Lord, for what this day means, but we realize today is not the only day of the year we celebrate the resurrection. It's just one day on a calendar of days that we walk in that truth. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to go before us. Bless the rest of our day. And once again, set our, set our hearts on fire for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. If there's anyone here who has not prayed to receive Jesus Christ as into your heart as your Savior, you would like to do that, please come on up here so we can pray with you and give you a Bible if you need one. The rest of you guys, may God give you an awesome day. And may he set all of our hearts on fire in these last days to be used by him. God bless you guys. Have a great week.